thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is once more a privilege to steward this pulpit for the Word of God being shared to the saints at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. We are entering a time of the year in which people are more aware about doing good unto others, right? So this is the Christmas season that we're entering into, and it it may be watered down by some regards in its spiritual perspective in pop culture, but... There's been at least some retention, if you would, of having goodwill towards men that is promoted during this time. This is a time of year where you'll see initiatives and missions, both secular and religious, in which charities will be uh, highlighted or brought to your attention. Just after the Feast of Thanksgiving we'll have this week will come the Blur of Black Friday and the Binge of Cyber Monday. But then after that comes Giving Tuesday in which uh, a day is dedicated to spending whatever dollars you have left uh, on uh, some good causes. Now, I have no problem with general benevolence, with an influence even on benevolence. And this week I was uh, 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 given the opportunity to write an article that's going to go out to the Central Kentucky Network of Baptists uh, this week, encouraging our churches to use this season as a reminder to be involved with our friends over at Sunrise Children's Services. I talked about a few of the ways that you can do that, uh, and you can feel free to find me afterwards if you personally want to get more involved with Sunrise Children's Services. I'll be happy to share that with you. But in the article, I spend a little bit of time talking about the, the work of Sunrise is good, it is essential, and it is God-honoring. Sunrise Children's Services works with the foster care system and places children in Christian homes. They also have a couple of facilities uh, in which uh, they are, uh, are on-campus facilities uh, where children receive extended care there. But we need to remember this good, essential, and God-honoring work that Sunrise does in light of a verse that we looked at briefly last week, Galatians 6.10. It says, So then, as we have this opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of the faith. So, when we realize that the Lord in saving us has called us to do good unto others, especially of those in the household of faith, and when we recognize that groups like Sunrise Children's Services are serving with a mission that is aligned with our own, uh, united together under the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you would, when we realize all those things, then we are not compelled as if some form of legalism to partner with and to begrudgingly support Sunrise. But we are enabled and encouraged to partner with them for the glory of God. So, church, we absolutely this week and the rest of time beyond should be encouraged to do good unto others. We should think about that in the holiday season and beyond. I am thankful that this church has been a cause of good, a force of good, compassionately serving others at their point of need, core value number four. 
throughout the time that I've been here, and we'll look to do more. We're partnering uh, with Irish Town right now for the toy drive, and we've gone out to the Frida Harris Baptist Center out in eastern Kentucky. We've done collections for the eastern Kentucky flood victims and many other countless things that our church has done, plus individuals within this church that have done for the good of others. My point in bringing this up right now is not to build ourselves up with some form of pride and throw ourselves a party for all the good things that we've done, but rather to say, church, let's keep it up. Let's be encouraged to do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. We have seen and done things thus far, and let's keep going. Let's find more ways to steward the gifts that God has given us and use them for the glory of God. Let's do good unto others and to unto one another. And this sounds like a lofty calling. I know that many of us have limited means, but today as we approach God's word, I hope that we will see Every single one of us who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord has been uniquely equipped to be an extreme source of good in this world. An invaluable source of good. We should also see as we walk through here that being a a force of good doesn't necessarily involve financial efforts. So if you haven't already, turn to Acts chapter 3. Today's section of scripture that we're studying is a specific incident involving two of the disciples, uh, two of the 12 apostles, directly prior to this chapter that we've been looking at. We saw the ascension of Jesus Christ. We saw the empowerment of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and then the beginning stages of the church. Last week, that's what we looked at a lot when we looked at the last six verses of chapter two. And it serves as kind of a general broad description of the daily life for new believers in the first church. So today we are zooming in on a specific occurrence involving Peter and John. So let's just start. Let's look at verse one of Acts chapter three. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour of the day. Uh, or at the, I'm sorry, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So. As we approach this text, we want to both wrap our minds around what is about to happen and then how do we apply this to our lives? How do we understand what's going on in the minutia of the text and then what do we do with this? And as we do that, we need to first make sure we have a clear picture of what is going down right here. So we're going to break it up. We're going to see the setting, if you would. First, we see Peter and John. Two of the apostles, they're walking together to go to the temple at the hour of prayer on our modern clocks. That's three o'clock in the afternoon, three, uh, three in the day. And so Peter and John, these two guys are longtime friends. They uh, had been together through the miraculous forging of the early church at Pentecost. They had also been taught together by Jesus directly, both before and after he resurrected. Uh, And they were two of the three disciples closest with Jesus. They were present there on the Mount of Transfiguration where they were where they got to see the glory of uh, of Jesus there. And And then their friendship likely extends even before Jesus called them to be disciples as they grew up together fishing from the very same lakes. So these guys were tight. They, they knew each other. They were boys. Now, not every friendship that we have from a young age continues with us for the rest of our lives. But what a grace it is when it does occur. What a cool thing it is. This friendship may have started on the seas, 
But it was forged in the fires of ministry and bonded by the blood of Jesus Christ. We would do well to have a shared friendship like Peter and John. So these two brothers in the faith, not biological brothers, brothers in the faith, head to the temple at the hour of prayer, it says, three in the afternoon, the ninth hour, if you would. This poses an interesting question for us in the New Testament church. What in the world were these Christian leaders doing at the Jewish center of faith? Didn't Peter and Jesus, or didn't Peter just declare on Pentecost that it was the Jewish people who were responsible for the death of Christ? Further, I don't think any of us regularly attend a Jewish synagogue today, right? So what are these guys doing? What is this all about? Well, there's a few opinions as to why they were there. One pastor suggests that, well, this is before the book of Hebrews was written. The, the apostles grew up practicing Jews, and so they wouldn't have known any better. They would have just continued on to participate in the regular acts of religion that they had witnessed before the crucifixion of Christ. Now, I'm not overly compelled by that argument. It's true that this event does take place before the writing of Hebrews, but I think that they would have known from the, 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 the time with Christ, the 40 days there after Christ's resurrection, where they were receiving teaching on the kingdom. I think they probably would have known from there uh, or the direct aid of the Holy Spirit that they had with them that they were no longer obligated to participate in the rituals of the temple. I don't think it was just uh, going through the motions for why they were there. I think what we're most likely seeing here is the continuity of the kingdom of God. By this, I mean Peter and John understand themselves to be followers of the Messiah, the one promised by God through the prophets and as inheritors of the promise, the true children of Abraham through faith in Jesus, they continue to frequent the central places in Jewish life. They are not, however, continuing to worship per se. There's, there's no record of the Jerusalem believers going up to the temple with sacrifices, for example. But basically what I'm saying here is they go to the new to the temple, they go to the temple with an even better understanding of what the temple is than those who are working in the temple. They are seeing, oh yes, this is made for the God of Abraham and all of this is culminating in our boy Christ. Let me tell you about him. That's basically what we're seeing going on here. They know God is saving people through Jesus Christ, and thus they can go and they can pray to the God of Abraham, the same one true God, and they can go there sharing their faith and calling more of God's people unto him. So that's what we see there. They go at a busy time of the day. Whatever the case may be, it should be clear to all of us, though. The temple here is not the conduit through which things are about to go down. It is not the practice of ritualistic religion that accomplishes what we see. As we progress through the early church, we will see that what has come through Christ is greater than the law. It's greater than the systems that captivated the minds of the average Jewish person. That will be made known to many right here in this three o'clock hour of prayer in one of the highest attended traffic times in the daily rhythms of the temple. Which leads us to our next section of the introduction here, verses 2 and 3. It says, A man lame from birth 
was carried, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So laying here at one of the gates was a man who had been lame that is unable to walk since birth. This would have been a common occurrence in that there would be people laid out all around the temple to ask for alms. And we're not told the exact diagnosis of this lame man, uh, of this individual, but we know that he's been afflicted since birth with some form of weakness that doesn't allow him to walk on his own. Now, we're not told this in the text, but uh, tradition in the church suggests that this man that we're talking about was 40 years old. He's believed to be about 40 years old. So for four decades, he had been placed out front now, at least in the best gate of the, of the temple, the beautiful gate, and it was giving him the best chance to make money. Injured and afflicted folks would often seek these positions as the only way for them to be able to make an income. They didn't have social programs that we have today, or they didn't have the same advancements in medicine. There was nothing for this man to do other than to sit there and ask other folks to have some charity upon him. So if, Someone lame from birth now for 40 years wouldn't have had much of a other choice than to sit and beg at the gate. So that's what the man did day in and day out. Why did he do it? Because it worked. As we're thinking about this in the context of, uh, uh, of being more aware of doing good this time of the year, we're, we're going to talk about something fairly familiar. Uh, or this is kind of happening in something that we can relate to. The, uh, the bell ringers of the Salvation Army, right? Uh, I noticed for the first time this year in the vestibule at Kroger on Richmond Road that uh, just yesterday they were set up there and they were ringing the bell and they were ready to receive uh, 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 gifts as they walked in. And uh, I don't bring this up because I have any sort of problem with the Salvation Army. I just want to use something that we can all relate to to better understand what's going on in our text. So with the Salvation Army, the, the, the bell ringers are strategically choosing locations that will maximize the amount of donations that they will receive uh, in this time. I, I remember one time when I was a child, I was walking into the store to get Christmas presents for my family, and I had saved up a whole $5 bill. And uh, I was going to accomplish my entire Christmas list. But I, I really wanted to help out this man who was out there in the cold ringing the bell for the Salvation Army. And so I walked up to the bucket and I decided to make change. Uh, but n- not how you're thinking. I didn't reach into the bucket. I decided that if I tore off a corner of my $5 bill, that that would be worth at least like 50 cents or something. Right. I wasn't a very bright kid. Uh, <laughs> But the strategy worked in some ways on me, right? Like I I saw this guy there. He was ringing his bell. I wanted to help him out. And so I walked up and I I tried in my childish way to give money. I I was full of Christmas cheer and I wanted to share if you would. So take that concept that we're familiar with and let's apply this to the lame man at the beautiful gate. This man was strategically placed at the nicest door of the temple, the prettiest door of the temple at the highest traffic time of the day. And so we got to remember one thing here. The Jewish people attending the temple during this hour of prayer were by and far what we would define as legalists. That means that they were arduously trying to earn their favor before a holy God by their own merits. They wanted to look good to feel good. 
if you would. Giving alms to the poor was seen as a way to earn their salvation and get their good points for the day. And our lame man from birth knew this. He was willing and ready to be the recipient of their pity. Being that he was set up at the beautiful gate, this is the gate that the Jewish folks walking through this entrance, they would have been the most concerned with looking good and feeling good and doing good for themselves. It is almost certain this man did very well for himself day in and day out, begging in this location. So he sees Peter and John and he asks them to receive alms, that is to give him some money. And here's what happens next, verses three through five. Seeing Peter and John, they're about to go into the temple. He asked to receive alms and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. This man's expecting his money. He says, uh, come on, I'm ready. <laughs> Give me your handout. But God has something different in store. Go to verse six. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So read through this passage, I thought to myself, I wonder how disappointed the man was at this point. He's ready to receive his money. The only thing that he's been able to do for 40 years. These guys say, no, get up and walk. This man's been lame since birth. He's never even considered walking before. Think about how much dystrophy there must have been in his legs. They must have been skinny, tiny little legs. And these two guys from out of nowhere get his attention, look him straight in the eyes and get his hopes up because he thinks he's about to receive some cash. And then they say, no, get up and walk. What a cruel joke to play on this man. At least it would have been cruel if they weren't serious. Go to verses seven and eight. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Overall, this is certainly a miracle, but there is some glory in the subtleties that we might miss if we're not careful readers right here. First, I want you to notice Peter took him by the hand and raised him up. That is, Peter pulled the man up. That's what it says there when he raised him up. That's a get up kind of motion. Basically, the man didn't believe him. He said, yeah, right. You want me to get up? Good luck with that. And Peter said, no, man, get up. Peter knew that what he said and where the power to accomplish what he said, he knew where that power came from. And get this, if we're, we're quick to walk over this, Peter, the same Peter who doubted on the water while walking to Jesus, the same Peter who about drowned there on the water, now full of faith in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, extends his hand to this man and says, get up and walk. And it's here where we see the instantaneous and great work of the Lord in action. We've already said, we don't know exactly what caused this man to be unable to walk, only that he was unable to do so since birth. So if tradition is correct, four decades, 40 years, 
His his appendages would have grown in some degree. I mean, we we see nothing indicating that he wasn't a full-grown man, but not with the same strength and veracity of the rest of his body. And yet immediately he stood. He began to walk. The muscles, the ligaments, the veins, all once barely functioning to any degree, if at all, now at the full strength of an overgrown man. Don't overlook this miracle here. This man, lame from birth, is now up and walking. Not only did Jesus heal this man's legs and give him strength, Jesus repaired the neuropathways from the nervous system that tell the legs how to walk. We can be tempted to overlook this because we're used to seeing adults walking, but think about what a miracle it is when a little baby takes their first steps and what do they do? They teeter-totter fall down. This man takes his first steps and starts heel-clicking in the middle of the temple. This is a miracle. And like all of God's creative works, it is instantaneous. Like Adam in the garden being created as a fully formed man, we never consider how incredible it is for Adam that he got up and walked and started naming the animals right there on day one. But in a similar complete creation vein, this man is healed. His legs are restored. He is fully, completely functioning. If we aren't able to fully picture the grandeur of the miracle here, and we may be limited in some ways, if we can only read about it, we weren't there to see it, at least he was able to see how great of a miracle this is. Verse 8 tells us he leapt up, he stood, he walked, and I'll add, he probably strutted. He put a little bit of mmm in there as he walked into the temple with John and Peter on either side. But after a minute, he's like, man, I've been sitting too long, I'm strutting, I'm leaping. I'm not just leaping. I'm a shout of hallelujah. Come on, y'all. We're too Baptists for this. I'm a shout of hallelujah because this is what God has done to me. As you can imagine, this created a scene around the temple. Look at verses 9 and 10. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized this. This is a dude who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what he had done. When the rejoicing cripple entered the temple, the echoing chambers resounded with his jubilation. Hallelujahs rang across the vast cedars of Solomon's porch as everyone stepped, stopped, including those wicked money changers. They stopped to watch the high jumping cripple. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Wonder and amazement fills the area. It serves as a perfect sermon introduction for Peter. That's what we're going to look at next week. Peter uses this as a launch pad to do a sermon right there at Solomon's portico. But everyone's attention is had here. And all the focus in this scene is on the amazing thing that God has done in the life of this man. So what do we do with this story? What is the application of this story? I said at the onset of this message that I hope we would see we all have been uniquely equipped and gifted to be a source of good in this world. And that that force of being good, uh, being a force of good doesn't require financial means. Does that mean that as we read this story and believe us to be a force of good, that we have to be healers, that we have to be miracle workers? Those things don't cost any money, right? 
That's what happens in the story. Peter walks in, he heals the man, he gets up, it's a miracle. Well, we need to have a good understanding, a good grasp on the theology of healing. We looked at healing quite a bit in our previous series when we looked at Matthew chapters 8 and 9. There, Jesus displays his authority over creation through these miraculous healing events that we walked through. He shows his rightful place as the Son of God through healing. We should note that Christ himself accredited his ministry. That is, he he said, my ministry is valid by using miracles. In the early church, he gave that same capacity to the apostles and prophets there in order that the word that they spoke might also be confirmed by signs and by wonders and mighty deeds. The confirmation of any man's ministry today is no longer the same. It's not based on what acts we do, but whether our ministry matches the word of God. This has become the standard because it's God's final revelation. But before the New Testament church was Complete in the era of the early church here, the accommodating miracles gave confirmation to the gospel. They say these guys are what they say they are. They are preaching what they say they are preaching. God has done what they say God has done. If you look through the book of Acts and the epistles for that matter, you'll only see healings accomplished by or in the direct appearance of or presence of the apostles. So further, if miraculous healings were supposed to be the norm in the church, a regular part of the practice of believers, why is it not commanded or even encouraged, really, in any of the epistles to the churches? We're not told to go out and to heal other people by a touch. There are many directions given, including directions on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what that looks like in the life of the church. There's not a command given to a regular believer to go out and to touch and heal others. Also, while I'm kind of taking a rabbit trail here to battle false teachers claiming the modern gift of healing, it should be noted that in the New Testament church, the act of healing is always done to show the power of God to unbelievers. Right here, it's happening to unbelieving, in the presence of unbelieving uh, Jewish people. It's not done in the context of a tent filled with people who already claim to believe uh, in Christ and just want to feel better. You don't see that in Scripture. Even in our text today, this is taking place in the, to get the attention of the Jewish people who still have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. When the man was healed, it was not by the power of Peter, not by the gift of Peter even really. It was by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Peter used that full name, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth name, so that there would be no mistake as to how, who, and why this was happening. This healing happens as an act of God through the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is a contextual link in this verse proving that this is a messianic accomplishment in this healing. Verse 8, I don't have it on the screen right this second, but verse 8 says the lame man got up and leapt. Well, look at what it says in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm and feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These eschatological promises, these 
uh, in time promises, if you would, fulfillment of scripture promises made in Isaiah began to be filled, fulfilled in Jesus's ministry and continue to be fulfilled in the ministry of his apostles. This is a new eschatological era of, era of fulfillment founded on Jesus as the Messiah. And that's central to Peter's message that we'll see uh, coming uh, in just the next uh, week. But it's clear this healing is specifically a continuation of the fulfillment of Scripture. Healing is not the prescription for our church to be a force of good in the world. So then, what is? I don't want to leave us hanging this morning. Go back to verse 6. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The apostles, Peter, was especially gifted with the ability to heal. There is no denying that. We see it in, uh, in action right here. God worked through him to heal other people. But there's a principle here for our church that if we truly wrap our minds around this church, we will see and be a real force of good in this world. Peter looks at the man and he says, I don't have silver. I don't have gold, but here's what I do have. The power of the name of Jesus Christ. Church, we might not have much. We individually might have next to nothing. But if we have the power of the name of Jesus Christ, if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, if we bow to him for the Lord he is, then what we actually have is more valuable than all the banks and the bluegrass. What we have is a better healing agent than all the treatments in St. Joe's. What we have is more satisfying than all the L8 in Winchester, Larry. And what we have is more needed than the very air and the lungs of all those around us, whether they recognize it or not. We must be bold enough to address the needs of those around us, to compassionately serve at the point of need with care, with compassion, but most of all, with Christ. And honestly, when we read this story, we really shouldn't be trying to identify ourselves with Peter and John. If we're going to make us anyone in this story, it's not them. We're not the healers. We're the lame man. We're the ones who had nothing else to do but to beg for whatever cheap thrill might numb our heart's discontent for a brief moment only to spend the next day getting up and begging again. Until somehow, out of no work of our own, we were confronted by the very power of the name of Jesus Christ. And we were saved from our sins by the grace of God for the glory of God. We might not think that our story is all that dramatic, you might not think, well, I wasn't lame for 40 years. I don't have much of a testimony. 
But if you've been plucked from the gates of hell and sealed for eternal glory, you ought to be leaping more than a man who was able to get up and walk for the first time. When we truly cherish the salvation we've been given, when we see what it cost and what it's worth, we will be celebrating too, church. And you know what happens? You know what happens when we act like we actually enjoy the salvation that Christ has given us? When we actually cherish the promises that he's given us? When we actually live in response to the grace that he lavishes over for us? You know what happens? People are filled with wonder and amazement and want to know what's happened to us. They're primed, given the introduction for the gospel that Peter's about to give in our text this morning. Listen, we don't know how they'll respond. It's not our job. That's between them and God. But church, may we know, cherish, and share what Christ has done in our lives. May we enjoy the power of the name of Jesus Christ. I've asked Miss Sarah if she would come up this morning and just share a little bit about what Christ has done in her life. So I want to give her the opportunity to do so. I don't know if you want to hold this, but it's easier to hear if you as a teacher, I'm sure I can speak loud enough for everyone. I'm just going to set that right there. <laughs> okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, first, I just want to thank Brad for asking me to come and give, this op- give me this opportunity to speak to you all today. Um, I so much identify with the lame man. Uh, I am absolutely was the lame man uh, that could not walk. Um, and I'm sure that that day when uh, the lame man cried out and asked for alms, he got a lot more than he was expecting. Um, I know that when I cry out for God, I've always gotten more than I expected. Um, my lameness was caused by my own sin and choices in life. Uh, I called out to God just wanting something to help me in my despair, and he delivered much more than I could ever have imagined. I came to know of Jesus when I was a small child. Um, I honestly don't know of a time that I can remember where God was not a part of my consciousness or having some type of relationship or understanding that there was a God. And I'm really grateful to my parents for raising me in the church. Um... But I know that I came to a point uh, in my life where the temptation of sin was just so great. Um, And I walked away from God, knowingly walked away from God, uh, into a life that I thought was going to make me happy and fulfilled uh, because I was going to do what I wanted to do. (laughs) That was always what I like to say. Well, I'm going to do what I want to do. So I did. Um, I rebelled like a lot of good 90s Gen Xers or whatever we are called. I rebelled. Uh, I smoked. I drank. I had sex. And I did a lot of things that made me feel like I wasn't good enough for God. And I was ashamed of myself, but I kept going. 
Over and over again, I found myself in life at the bottom. A victim of my own making. I was miserable, I thought, because of the actions of others. My failed marriages. My mistakes haunted me. For years, I was left in a miserable and isolated state. I felt like that I was not good enough for God's love. But even though I walked away from God, he never walked away from me. And one day I got my Bible out and I turned to the only place I could think of, John 3. And I started reading and praying. And one more time I said, God, please help me. I cannot do this any longer. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. But I know you have the power. And I started listening to uh, pastors online, um, and I started slowly walking back to God. Um, and I really, you know, for the first time, was not scared anymore. I was willing to do whatever God wanted me to do because I realized that true happiness was not in what I was doing. All of my happiness, everything I thought was going to make me happy never did, never did. Two years ago, I came to Pastor Brad and I said, I know this is weird. <laughs> I know that I'm a 45-year-old woman, but I want to be baptized. And he baptized me. And that wasn't the start of everything getting easy for me. It was the start of going further with God and walking with him. I know that many of you all prayed for me. I know some of you have prayed for me almost my entire life. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that. And today I can say that Jesus has healed me. That I am no longer lame. That I know that I have a Christ and a Lord in heaven. And I know that he saved me. And if he can save me, <laughs> he certainly can save anybody. <laughs> I'm a new person in Christ. And if you want to know him, you can always come and see me. Thank you, guys. As Sarah was sharing there, what came to my mind, knowing Christ at a young age, seeing the Ways that we get off track at times. I'm reminded that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He will renew our repentance. It's by his grace that we are saved. When we understand and recognize the salvation there is in Christ, when we cherish the salvation there is in Christ, we can live with a joy that is unmatched by anything when we are trying to live in this world. I show this graphic all the time. It's one of my favorite pictures because it, it shows us the great lengths with which Christ 
which God has gone to save us from our sin and our brokenness. How we are lame and stuck in our brokenness on our own. But Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven to live and to die, to rise again, to declare his majesty so that all who believe in him shall not perish, but be saved. In our faith in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to the perfect God. We are restored to the perfect God. We see we still go through bumps in our sanctification. We still, we st- we're still stupid sheep. <laughs> We fall off track, but we have been enabled and especially equipped to follow, obey, and grow. And praise be to God that his sheep hear his voice. That he calls us and renews our repentance. Church, if your story has gone from running from God in sin to being reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a story worth sharing and a reason to live with joy. If we truly want to be a force of good in this world, then let's do what Christ has called us to do. Let's implore this broken world to be reconciled to God because he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, may we repent of trying to do it on our own and cling to Christ. If you've never done that before, you can do so today. I'll walk through you with it. Not that there's anything about me. It's all about God. He's the one calling. Let's give him glory in our lives. You can respond today. Jesus, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again to pay the cost of our sins, to reconcile an unholy creature to a holy God. We still falter. We still get off track. We still have sin in our lives, at least on this side of glory. But Lord, out of your great love, you remember them not. That grace doesn't shine on us so that we continue in sin by no means. God forbid, how could we do such a thing? But we know whenever we do fall, and we do, that we have an intercessor, that we have a mediator, Christ the King, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, vouching for us, imputing us with his righteousness because ours will always fail. So Lord, if we recognize the righteousness, the great gift that you have given us, if we truly cherish that, Lord, may we live like it. May we act like it. May we smile like it. May we laugh like it. May we praise like it. May we say hallelujah like it. May we give you glory. Lord, Whenever we try to find joy in a lesser thing, it never fits. Renew our repentance today. May we cling to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church Podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.